Race matters. 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 to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in the hands for a long time after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour, about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. How are you, Darren? Happy spring. Happy spring. Spring has sprung. I know. The weather is stunning right now. For those that don't know, Darren is really giving <laughs> us so much to love about his Sunday get up. I just like, we have been looking, we've been looking at him in awe all morning. I'm wearing cargo shorts. <laughs> The cargo shorts are out. It's the way you wear it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. It's fun. I love to see it. You got bangs. I got bangs. <laughs> I did. Oh, I've refreshed my bangs. I, you know, like we said, it's spring, so there needs to be change. Something's got to change. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm just doing the bangs to just um, really exemplify how toxic I am. Because <laughs> apparently that became the most common critique I got on the bangs when I cut them myself in lockdown that last year. That was deep lockdown. I think that <laughs> you can just pretend that didn't happen. The bangs of lockdown. <laughs> I don't know. I'm constantly reminded of it by my loved ones. You need to reassess the love. I know, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. a great family dynamic at the moment. <laughs> if I really want to... <laughs> I'm like, I come from a hard household because they don't like my bangs. <laughs> Toxic. Toxic. Yeah. <laughs> you are listening to FBI 94.5. If you've been listening over the past week or so, you know that we're in the midst of our supporter drive. It's a time where we talk to you, our listener, about what it is that we do here at FBI. It's platforming Sydney music, arts and culture. And uh, Race Matters is part of that ecosystem. We've been in the show for, what, like four years now? Four years we've been yeah. doing Race Matters. Yeah. So we ask for your support to keep doing the stuff that we do at fbiradio.com slash support. It's $5 a month if you concession or $10 as a regular supporter. You also go into the running to win some incredible prizes, all of which you can see at fbiradio.com slash supporter drive. Sarah, can you think back to four years ago who who we were as people? Oh, I don't even think I was a person. <laughs> I just think I was a vessel. What did you say the other day? The full frontal lobe of your brain? Well, it wasn't fully developed when I started this. <laughs> Number one, full frontal lobe is not a thing. It's not a thing, yeah. It's the... No, I don't want to say it in case I get it wrong Therabellum. again. Is it, is it that Cerebral what it's called? Cerebral cortex. So, okay, no, that's yeah, what I yeah, was yeah. going to say. Um, gaslighting myself here. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, when we started this show four years ago, I mean, very different um, stage of uh, maturity, of uh, self-awareness. I was lacking. Same. Um, <laughs> but it was also, I remember doing starting this show and with all of you and just feeling so grateful to finally have a space to have discussions that I was having at my kitchen table. All of these yarns that we um, share 
by ourselves, but you know, with the, with our own communities and being able to have a space to say it in an un, say it unfiltered, um, and be stoically unapologetic about our identities and about who we are, and having a safe space to explore that, it just felt so huge to me when we did it. And I just remember feeling every week on the show like that, like the it was limitless. Mm. And it's I, and the way that it's grown now, I just feel like the way we've weaved through the nuances of all of these topics that we've delved into, like they've just, they've evolved so much over the last four years for me. I feel like my growth as a, um, as a, as a black woman, as a South Asian woman, all of how I understand my own diaspora as a South Asian woman and also, um, and being, um, indigenous as well is just it, the way I reflect on myself, the way I see myself. I think race matters has really gifted that to me has really gifted me a stronger understanding of how I want to exist within my community and outside of that. And likewise, I mean, your generosity, even talking now and also over the years, sorry, I feel like has brought up so many people with you, myself included. (laughs) You know, a lot of what we do here is for our listeners. um, And, you know, the feedback that we've gotten on the show over the years has been incredible. Yeah. Um, You know, starting conversations both internally and with our communities and Mm. with our loved ones and with our not-so-loved ones about things we wouldn't have the tools, the language, the courage, the ability to previously talk about this show has given us and people that we know in our community the tools to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, even just being um, a part of the Race Matters family, like, you know, um, Darren and I in particular, like this, like we have, I... We have this beautiful friendship now that we didn't have before. I didn't know who Darren was before we started this show. And it was just like such a seamless dynamic that we had. And, you know, I remember when doing Race Matters like two years ago and you coming over and co-hosting with me at Koori Radio Mm. in the mornings, like... I just feel it's um, all quite kind of exemplary of what we've cra- what we've had the um, privilege to craft here, and it's it's just ex- it's exciting to see um, people feel like they resonate within that as well. So yeah, I just I have a lot I have a lot of gratitude for race matters. I also feel like race matters um, functions as a healing space as well. Sometimes, like you know when we go through our day-to-day lives outside of the show and then we come and do this show, like it doesn't matter how tired we are or overwhelmed by whatever we've gone through. Whenever I feel like whenever we finish this show, there is this like sense of like, Oh, I, I didn't know I needed that. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you, do you feel that? I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> no. Um, you're like, no, I'm yeah. still stressed. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm therapizing you here, Sarah. That's what this is. Free therapy. Um, no, a hundred percent. Like, it's it's wild to think that this show started at a fifteen minute segment. Considering what? the conversations that we've had, like it went I from fifteen that. minutes uh, to a thirty minute show, yeah. and now to an hour show, and you know. Maybe back then that didn't make sense. You know, 15 minutes, let's unpack race. Let's unpack this all on a 15-minute segment. And then, you know, an hour's not enough. You know, sometimes a lifetime's not enough mm. to unpack this sort of mm. things. But if you're constantly chipping away at it, um, that's what counts. Yeah. And that speaks to the idea that, you know, this, this show's never done. Like, there's so much that we could be doing more. There's so yeah. much that Race Matters should be doing more. And there are so many spaces that we're yet to speak to. Um and there are limitations to those conversations all the time, you know. Yeah. You, Sarah, and myself also can only speak to, you know, how wide our experience can be. But that's why we're always, you know, bringing people into the fold, mm. um, inviting these voices on to be platforming them and having conversations that really nowhere else in radio is doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's also important to remember as well that, you know, 
race matters gets to function because of so many other people that have fought to have space mm. like this in the past. Um, you know, we've got, you know, Radio Skid Row, like they platform, they do a lot of this stuff as well already. Like Lord of Monroe with the survival guide, like it's such a uh, archive of knowledge that's been in, that's been put out there, that's been published from, and you would never really get to have access to that kind of space if it wasn't for these types of mediums that that live right now but you know it's important to acknowledge that we get to have this show and we get to have this space because of so many people before us that have already done the fight to craft out the space and so we always kind of just hope that race matters gets to be a part of that story and it grows into other people wanting to uh, build their own space that's something like it's something better Mm. as we move through uh, ahead on the show, we'll be hearing an interview with multidisciplinary artist Rihanna Hare Toussaint. After the debut of her club night, Crip Rave Theory, it was an event created in response to inaccessible and exclusionary club spaces, centering and celebrating all bodies that are sidelined in traditional nightlife culture. You've probably heard her mixes on FBI or experienced her art. Rihanna is a disabled Crip artist of Afro-Caribbean heritage. Her work often crosses traditional art form boundaries Um, to create works that interrogate entrenched systems and advocate for social change. Her practice is deeply informed by her movement language and embodied experience as a wheelchair user, her self-taught artistic background and her training as a legal practitioner. Yeah, in the conversation you'll hear today, we'll learn, uh, I guess, more about how she created a club night drawing on disabled knowledge to create a more intersectionally accessible rave space and shifting what we think access and inclusion even means and also honouring the history of disability justice as being founded by black and brown queer folk. Crip Rave Theory is a party and a proposition. A club night outside the club night that draws on disabled or crip knowledge to create a more intersectionally accessible rave space. Imagine a space where all bodies, genders, expressions and abilities were actively considered and consulted with to feel welcome. An event write-up where you know exactly what's going on, led by care for everyone in the space. A rap track Oslan interpreted, somewhere to rest and recharge between dancing, a welcome to country to ground us. I've definitely had a lot of formative times on the dance floor, and over the last few years there have been some shifts in thinking about what it is to come together in this way. Crip Rave Theory felt different. So much thought was put into the event, carving out a really needed and considered space. A club night reimagined. I got to speak to its creator, multidisciplinary artist and organiser, Rihanna Head Toussaint, on turning dreams into reality with Crip Rave Theory. So I wanted to start by saying thank you for creating Crip Rave Theory. A lot of people I witnessed and spoke to had a really euphoric time and people who maybe can't access a dance floor were front and centre What was it like for you to be immersed in a space that you created and that was guided by a framework of disability justice? 
It was amazing. Um, you know, like I, I guess like I've been dreaming of a place like this for a while, like in both conscious and unconscious ways. You know, I've been, I, I had been wanting to DJ for like quite a long time, um, but never really um, was able to access lessons or um, even the equipment. Um, and, you know, there was like this strange thing that happened like just before the pandemic where um, I kind of like had a resurgence of that wish and was like, okay, I'm going to like, I try and take a class. And I like actually like went to this person's house that was like supposedly um, like a the DJ teacher of, of so-called Sydney. Um, and like, of course, when I went there as well, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't access the CDJs. Like they were too high for like a wheelchair user like myself. Um, but that person was like to me, oh, you know, um, you probably could just like, you know, if, if you have the funds purchase like the cheapest of cheap um, DDJs and just like play around with it. Um, you know, and I mean, that's the level of knowledge that I didn't have. Like, I didn't even know that, you know, these other smaller pieces of equipment existed. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay. And so then, you know, I got one um, and I just started like tinkering with it um, in, in the pandemic. And, you know, I was enjoying it. And then um, I started, I guess I started working at FBI and I was like meeting other DJs and um, I guess like all of these things together was just really like reigniting my wish to be in club and party spaces, um, which was something that I, you know, hadn't done much of for a long time because the experiences that I'd had when I was younger were just so not great, <laughs> you know, like it was just blatantly obvious to me, um, you know, when I would go to those places that like I wasn't, nobody was expecting me to be there, you know what I mean? Um, and it was like, you know, a shock for them. Um, and, you know, like in terms of the architecture and, and also like socially, it just wasn't set up as a place where I could have a good time like everyone else and like feel equally welcomed. And so, you know, yeah, I just, I just hadn't been doing that for a long time, but then I started to have this wish to do it again. And, um, yeah, I was like, okay, actually now I have some connections, um, you know, and through my other artistic work as well. Like, yeah, I have connections with spaces. I have connections with people who I feel like are like-minded. Um, and I, I want to make this happen. Um, and yeah, create a space where people aren't just, aren't just able to get in the door physically, but feel like they're welcomed and they've been thought about in the planning and they're actually wanted in the space. Um, and so that's that's when I started like deliberately dreaming and scheming around crip rave theory. And you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of work um, to get from the idea to the realization. Um, you know, which we can talk about in more detail. But yeah, just to, to actually realize the space and have people in there and like see see the joy and feel the like relaxed vibe like all of the effort that that went into getting to that point it was just amazing to see it pay off and yeah it just really affirmed that like community care um and like solidarity and like 
disability-led space like has has something for everyone not just people who identify as disabled um yeah and yeah you know you, you mentioned disability justice before and you know disability justice is like a, really about creating a world and creating spaces where everybody in mind like regardless of how they're shaped um is is welcomed and you know I, this was yeah this was really what I wanted to do um you know the space is is ground is I'm trying to like have it be grounded in our agency and our self-determination um and you know trying to transform the culture um to to make it bigger and allow more space for all of us and I feel like that was that was definitely happening and a lot of people have like messaged me since then being like now you know after seeing what you did I want to run workshops so like I've been thinking about doing this and now now that I've seen it in practice like yeah I want to do it too and that's just like amazing to be to feel like you're part of a groundswell and obviously like that I'm not the first person to do this by any means like there have been many people doing it before me in other places and probably in the same places but just not not documented um but yeah it feels really great to be part of it yeah I I was definitely thinking about how crip rape theory feels like turning a dream into a reality which I feel like often is the work of disability justice is that Mm. dreaming aspect and yes something that I really felt in this space was the amount of care Mm. and it was in the overall way that you were communicating about the event the venue Mm. staff and everyone attending were really looking Mm. out for each other how would you speak to these acts of care and love as something subversive I guess to how these events are normally how club night is usually put on for me um you know when I think about um because yeah I guess I have to speak from my own perspective or my own experience um first first and foremost um when I think about um like access like you know there can be a ramp to get in a door and that um that is that could technically make a space wheelchair accessible, but that doesn't mean that you were being like genuinely welcomed. And I think, you know, that was something that I was trying to do because you see a lot of events that are put on that supposedly cater to disabled people or or any kind of marginalized communities, but you can tell like when they're not grounded in community um, and, you know, there can be a lot of, um features put in place or whatever that are supposedly going to make the space accessible but people are not going to come um if if they can't feel the the genuineness of the care and the um the groundedness in community um or or that's my opinion anyway and and me talking from my own personal experience as well um if I was to try to attend an event and so um I think it was really really important like the the marketing or whatever. I mean, I, I think marketing is kind of a cringe word, but like maybe we just say like the communication um, in the lead up to the event was really, really important to me. Um, the the tone and the framing of everything, because that um, 
like all of that work collectively is going to be like, I think a really huge part of whether or not somebody feels like they can come through and have a good time. That it was really important to me that this event was framed as one that is intersectionally or trying to be intersectionally accessible. Um, you know, I didn't want to just create another space that was siloing off disabled folks. Um, you know, I wanted to create a space where all bodies were welcomed and celebrated. Um, and in doing so as well, kind of try to um, advance maybe a broader understanding in community um, that access isn't just about disability. Um, you know, that um, we all have access needs, um, whether we're aware of them or not. Like we all have things that um, we would love to have in a space that would actually make it so much easier for us to show up there and to show up there wholly. Um, and so, you know, with this event, um, even, you know, yeah, we were obviously trying to put a lot of features in place that um, I guess we're considering access from a disability lens, quote unquote. Um, but then there were also a lot of other features that felt equally important to have in the space, like having Auntie Rhonda there to welcome us to country. Like that's absolutely an, an access need. I think it was really like when Auntie was there and she was like, situating us in the space like I think that contributed so much to the the feeling of care and the um like collective building within within the space um which just like grounded the party to follow in a really meaningful way because I did feel like everyone who was there were, were like showing up for each other as well as for themselves um, and then, like, you know, obviously the, there were lots of other things that we made sure of that, like, the that it was clear to everyone that the bathrooms were, like, all gender bathrooms that, you know, in the, like, ticket pricing and the ticket framing, like, we had, you know, different tiers to make it more economically accessible. Um, and, and, yeah, just, like, the, the language um, and the way that we were talking about the event in the lead up to it, like, you know, we were trying to, um, yeah, just create a sense or make clear the sense that everybody, as much as possible, everybody's thought about um, and everybody is, is welcomed. Yeah, I think it's really important to bring forward that idea of the many different ways of thinking of access. I feel like something that I've been noticing when people talk about access is mm. describing what isn't there. Like you'll see an event mm. right up saying there's no strobe lighting, there's no smoke or haze, but with mm. Crip Rave Theory, there was more of a feeling of abundance in all mm. of the communication leading up to the event. Mm. And like really thinking about what was considered and included, how can we embed thinking of access and inclusion in planning stages rather than an afterthought mm, yeah this is a this is a great question um I think you know something that was really brought home to me as somebody who I guess and this is even as somebody who thinks very consciously about access all the time access quote unquote because you know being a wheelchair user like there's very obvious access barriers for me in a physical sense that I have to um, navigate, you know, on, on a daily basis. Um, but what was, what I was really reminded of 
you know, throughout the process um, and in the lead up to the event and through the community consultation that I did as well, because, yeah, I was speaking with community a lot. And like, you know, when I say that, I mean like sub communities within the disabled community, but then also other the other communities that we're trying to make space for, um, you know, to, to find out, you know, what what things could could make your experience here more comfortable because I can't know everything, you know, I obviously like I cross multiple intersections, but yeah, I'm just one person. So, you know, I, I think consulting with community is just absolutely key. And like, this was, this was like paid consultation and this was consultation that happened like, um, you know, throughout, throughout the process at like different stages, like pre, during, post, um, you know, thinking about access as like an, an ongoing um, caring, loving piece of work um, that, that, yeah, like that we, not as like an inconvenience or like, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, an annoying afterthought, but something that like um, is actually just a part of every step of any process. People just need information. Like I think, you know, I think, um, organizers, and I, I can understand this, you know, if we all experience it, you get nervous, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, I'm not sure if, how people are going to take this. People might get upset. People might get angry. And, and often, like, you can have a tendency to kind of try to preempt what will or won't be accessible for people. Um, and so you just do this thing where you're like, um, we we won't have strobe or we won't have haze or whatever, but you don't actually paint much of a picture of the space overall. And people, like every individual is going to be better placed to know their own accessibility needs than you, the organizer, you know what I mean? So from my experience, I think like one of the best things you can do is just to try to give a lot of information about the space. It doesn't have to be like loaded this way or that, or like, um you know, framed as like this is not accessible this is accessible or whatever you just like give info about the features that are actually there um and then you, you know in doing that you give people the agency to make their own choices about what is or isn't accessible to them or what um what they are or aren't prepared to I don't know take a risk around or whatever which is what um you know a lot of folks more privileged folks get get to do every day because um, like it, everything, you know, carries some inherent risk, I suppose, like, especially in a party space or whatever, the the reality in life that I'm sure, you know, lots of people can um, identify with is that, you, you know, it's really hard to make um, a space like fully accessible for anyone, quote unquote, like, obviously, like, yeah, that's a fallacy. And one person's access needs will clash with another person's access needs. But, you know, if if you as as the individual with needs um you know have information about what's there and what's not there like you might still make the choice to come through knowing that there are still some things that aren't maybe 100% ideal for you because you already know about them and so now you've got your own other plans in place and you're coming with certain people or you might just come for a little while or you know i feel like that's those are choices that i personally make all the time in my in all areas of my life and I think I feel like that's that's a meaningful way to try to 
advance access for people to just yeah give give them the info and give them the the tools to to make their own decisions and also try to keep a channel of communication open as well and I think um yeah the more that you can uh try to yeah reaffirm for people that you're open and you want to hear from them and you don't consider this to be like a one-time thing or job done or whatever um that yeah it will it will make people feel like they like they are welcomed and they are wanted and you, you want to hear from them I do feel like there there is like meaningful change happening but I yeah I feel like there's still like there's still a lot more to be done and I don't know like it's so difficult because like you know all the people who are who are I feel like trying to make meaningful changes in these ways are the like yeah the community organizers who have like no money and no, no time like you know myself included in this group like we're all just like you know trying to do what, what we can with with very little um and so it's yeah it's it's such a difficult one I suppose like at, at one point or another like it's just about like making commitments to things and, you know, and being like, I don't know, just, just as like a, a again, a, a random example, like if, if you know that you can't always guarantee having an accept, uh, like a wheelchair accessible venue or whatever, well now at least with, with my space that I'm creating, so I'm speaking as like a hypothetical person here. I, I make, I want to make a commitment that like half the parties I throw every year will be in, wheelchair accessible spaces or whatever and you know I recognize that that's going to be a bit more work but that's a commitment that I want to make or like I'm I make a commitment to to on every lineup having you know at least one First Nations DJ or whatever this is just another access related commitment that I make I feel like this is kind of like just something that people or like places have to do um in order to to make meaningful change because otherwise the structural barriers are just too great. Often in the work that you're doing, you're resisting convention and the traditional boundaries of art making you've kind of begun to touch on it but what's the sense of possibility you feel in creating in the way that you do I feel like it's really huge um and I I guess like you know I didn't go to any kind of art school um I went to law school (laughs) So that's, I mean, still very rigid in, in its own way, but, you know, I wasn't um, restricted uh, or I didn't feel restricted in terms of like what art forms were open to me or whatever when I started practicing as an artist. Um, and I guess, you know, as a wheelchair user, uh, you know, working in all forms, but like maybe particularly, you know, in choreography and movement, like, you know, when I come in the room to like take a class or to perform or whatever the case may be, like, it's very rare that I'll, I'll be in the room with anyone who has a movement language that is, like, very close to mine, you know what I mean? So I just don't come from a place um, of, of fitting the norm, quote, unquote. Um, and that's, 
just been like a, a great and free thing. Um, and yeah, because I've just like, I just work in the ways that I kind of like have to, to a certain degree, but then also because I want to. Um, and, and I guess that want has only grown stronger as I've been, I guess, maybe part of other things earlier in my short career um, that, that where the space just wasn't made, made accessible um, in, a, in a meaningful way for myself and others, you know, accessible in the, in the broadest intersectional sense. Um, and so, so, yeah, I just started to, in response to that, just try to make my own spaces for people to show up um, and and to make that space for myself as well. Like maybe that gave me more confidence to then make other spaces or make spaces within my like group projects um, that where there are as, as much as possible, no preconceptions around the way that we should work or like if there are, they're not rigid, like they can change, you know, and, and they're responsive to the people and like the people are at the core and are driving it like it's as, as much as possible like you know I want every project that I work on with people to feel like a collective endeavor and that like we are we're we're, we're like in in charge of how it rolls out and I think I've slowly gotten better at holding that space for other people and yeah only want to do more of that because it means that the possibilities are just so much huger with my own like experience in the world um and my like kind of intersectional experience of um marginalization or whatever you know from from the various backgrounds that I come from and communities that I'm part of like I'm just I'm I'm so used to um I guess like having um like having spaces be inaccessible to me in, in various different ways. And so I think that's just translated in my work into a wish to um, interrogate these spaces, try to change them um, and try to create my own spaces for people to show up like as freely and fully as possible. So a question that we ask everyone on Race Matters is maybe in thinking about everything that we've been chatting through when did you realize there was power in your race? I think I've always felt this um, because, you know, like, I guess, like, being an Afro-Caribbean person, like, um, you know, like, I come from a history of, like, slavery and, like, pushing against that and then also, like, um, coming from, like, like, empire or, like, I have ancestors slash like family members who are like part of um the these like indigenous carib indians of dominica um and so like you know they're they're still surviving like living um you know in in the ways that they always have um like in the mountains in dominica so that's like also really cool to know that to be part of that lineage as well so i feel like i i have always kind of known that but also i do feel like um particularly like DJing has like brought me back to that a bit because I guess like as um as like a disabled person as well and like also like a visibly disabled person like 
people really try to squish you into only being disabled. You know what I mean? Like, and that, that part of your, yeah, siloing off that part of your identity, like is something that always, that, that, um, there always feels like pressure around that or something. And I feel like DJing has been a really great way for me to like embrace and bring forward my, the intersectionality of my identity and like being a person of Afro-Caribbean heritage as well. Like, yeah, I feel like through, through playing music, um, I've been able to like bring this part of myself back to the fore as well. Um, and that's been, that's, yeah, made me feel really great and powerful, like bring back my three-dimensionality or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Um, so I think, yeah, I've kind of always known it, but, but yeah, definitely playing music and like my work in, in musical spaces has like reaffirmed that for me and made that feel stronger as well. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. Thank you to our guest, Rihanna Hetusson, for sharing about her work and the unique spaces she creates and for reminding us that accessibility is ongoing, caring, loving type of work. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. 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 Race matters.